0: I actually was really <laughs> inspired by a Timothy Chalamet profile in GQ. The, the main takeaway I got, I got from that as, as a young food writer was quality over quantity. I think that, that's always been my mantra with with my work. Even with just like an internet presence, kind of like less is more maybe.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel.
2: Today on the show, Matt is talking with New York Times cooking columnist Eric Kim. Also, Matt and I discuss what we've been up to for the past few years since we last dropped a Taste Podcast episode. We're back, Anna. We're back. We're back. But first of all, how was hanging out with Eric?
1: Oh, yeah, Eric Kim. I I love this guy. He's such a unique voice. He's got this unique style of food writing, which has appeared frequently in the New York Times, Food 52, and many other publications. Eric mixes a truly lyrical style of prose with deep reporting chops and this knack for writing recipes in the most simplest form, one or two ingredients. We all know that's extremely difficult, and Eric excels at it.
2: He also wrote an awesome story for Taste earlier this year. About the concept of the second fridge and just the ways that people creatively use their second refrigerators in their basements, garages.
1: I love the idea of the second and third fridge. Just New Yorkers typically don't have those, but he really captured it in this taste article, which we'll link to in the show notes. So in this conversation, we talk about some of these Times recipes, these big hits, and also his forthcoming cookbook that I am personally really excited about. is called Korean American. It's dropping in the spring. And we also talk about uh, the way this book blends memoir and crack recipe development. And it's just such a cool book.
2: Here's Matt talking with Eric. And make sure to visit tastecooking.com for our latest stories and recipes and to sign up for our newsletters, which drop on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.
1: Eric Kim, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm sucking on a cough drop, if that's okay. Uh,
1: you sound um. great to me. And <laughs> we are recording this um, in September. And yesterday, you dropped your cover on Instagram. Like, you revealed your cover. Your book is out next year in March. But we, I wanted to get you in because it's just like Eric Kim. We got to talk to Eric Kim. <laughs> Love you. We've You're great. Well, how did that go?
0: It's been a crazy week. I, I was so excited, so nervous. The, the feedback has been incredible, and I think it was also just a reminder of kind of readers I have. They're very engaged, and so I don't think that I have that many followers, but the ones I do have are very dedicated, and they they always, like, send me Timothy Chanley photos, and everyone's, like, always sharing things, and so I feel very, I feel very loved. Um
1: why? Why is that? I mean, I, I have my theories, and I'll and I'll talk about it in the intro to this podcast. But I, I think um, you you do have fans, and you connect in a way that's very special. I think food writers often don't have that deep connection to their readers. They create great recipes, and you know we love the the food, but when it comes to the person, maybe not. But you, what what is it about you? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah,
0: sure. You know, I wonder if it has to do with just the fact that I'm on social media a lot. I pretty obsessed with my phone i need to i need to turn it off um which i did last night after i posted it because because of the anxiety but i think one thing i've always i actually was really <laughs> inspired by a timothy chalamet profile in gq in all seriousness it it's was your boy <laughs> it's my boy it was a really good it was a really good profile and it just kind of talks about how he went into the woods and was really like rethinking his career and i think the, the main takeaway I got, I got from that as as a young food writer was um quality over quantity, and that's something that my boss Genevieve Co also always encourages um, at the times and so I think i I wanted to i think that that's always been my mantra with 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 my work and with even with just like an internet presence kind of l- like less is more maybe
1: absolutely and and you right now we' we'll, we'll pivot to the the times before we get to korean American. Because uh, you are um, a staff writer, cooking writer on The Times. I want to hear about the what the process is like um, at The Times and really yourself as a developer. What do you try to do with your recipes? You, you aren't only cooking Korean food, which is the point of hiring you because you develop amazing recipes. So what do you think about when you're developing these recipes?
0: Yeah, I think... This job was timed so aptly, like right after I finished developing the book, basically, and so I had all these impulses that I learned from my mom. And I think one thing that we always had as a barometer for the recipes in the cookbook uh, was "kanchunmat," and in Korean that like refers to like uh, a taste that grabs you. So if we take a bite of something and doesn't grab you, then it's like not worthy of you know <laughs> existing or whatever. Because I think my constant worry is uh, just iterating without any variants and like copying or just not being original. So that's my greatest <laughs> fear, I think. So when I am developing a recipe, I always want to make sure there's like a teaching moment, kind of like something new that I feel that I, you know, am offering to a certain recipe.
1: It's great that you say that because you do teach, you know, advi- you, you advise on uh, technique but you also are really apt to take these uber simple concepts, oftentimes two ingredients like rice plus egg, espresso plus ice cream. So what dry, what kind of draws you to the, the, the uber simplicity, um, which many know is an, a great challenge when writing recipes too?
0: Yeah, um, that's a great question because I would actually say that with my recipes, Genevieve helps me pull back and... She helps me like knock out certain ingredients that I don't need, and my impulse is often to just really fortify with fish sauce and sugar and salt. <laughs> but that's sort of my um, those are my go tos. But with those specific recipes, those were actually um, columns for the New York Times Magazine, and so I think with that column, I sort of approached it with this in mind: like, what can I write laps around? And I've always loved writing about truisms in culinary life, and so for me that meant um, just talking about sweet and sour sauce at McDonald's for, for 800 words. Um, the egg rice was something that I noticed on social media it was just very resonant across culture. So I really wanted to tell that story. And affogato was, mm. was, um, an assignment actually, or it was like a suggestion from, from Genevieve. And I love, uh, I love assignments just as like a writer. Um, it's nice to be handed something. It's like, are you passionate about this at all? And then
1: for Avogato, I'm remembering this. I, I didn't read the column recently, but was there something to do with like a drive and throwing soft serve <laughs> into a cup of coffee? Yeah. I think that's what you were writing about. So, yeah, I was literally on the road. I
0: was driving down to Georgia and <laughs> actually I, I want to tell the story because it's funny now. But <laughs> Emily <laughs> Weinstein, I took off for my birthday. It was like two days. And Emily Weinstein emailed me um, on the Monday that I was off and she was she didn't you know know that I was off. She was like, are you still filing your column today? I was like, <gasps> Oh my god! And I was like on i seventy five, driving, and I hope Emily doesn't listen to this, but um, I, I, New York
1: Times editor Emily Weinstein, <laughs> long time, I think she'll appreciate the story. But friend of taste. <laughs> so, so
0: I think what ended up happening though was like it was a very organic column because I was literally on the road. I was literally like getting coffee and ice cream, and um, so it kind of worked out perfectly. And I, I, I feel like I've written some of my best stuff in motel rooms, like on road trips. So.
1: <laughs> like your extreme candor is appreciated, um, all food writers or writers in general uh, experience um a lapse of deadline or just an yeah, intentional definitely. but it was a great column i <laughs> i respect I respect it. do you have a like a most popular recipe
0: yeah, yeah, um I actually thought about this recently because you know with each new recipe that comes out, I kind of like forget about the past ones because i'm tracking like how the new one is doing but um, I think this is evidenced by all the shares I still get every day from for the Sheep Pan Peeping pop. That one was really, that one's definitely the most popular, I would say. But the creamy asparagus pasta is also popular with the, the, the keem, the roasted seaweed. And then the salmon is trending now. So the gochicada salmon is something I see a lot. And what I love about those three recipes is that each one kind of highlights a, a Korean pantry ingredient. And I just love that um, these recipes have First of all, uh, become popular at all, and then the fact that they're making people go out and buy these ingredients, and mm-hmm. sort of uh, le- some of them, many of them, learning th- about them for the first time, and then incorporating them into their own own repertoires. So, like, kochujang, kochukaru, and then uh, kim. Which
1: yeah, having Kim in there uh, and calling it in na- seaweed, or by the Japanese name nori, is is cool, and and we can talk about your, your Korean writing. Um, it's it's really important to use the right language and yeah for sure correct language i I appreciate that Um, do you read your comments you know i i really do
0: i i'm someone who obsesses about everything and i track everything and so I, i i was always like i was like a managing editor so you know i i like to track uh feedback and i take it to heart and i i like learning from the comments but what's really nice is when you kind of just when you write about your life and you write about food and something kind of happy people often write really sweet things so um the feedback the the comments are often very very kind actually so
1: you dive into the new york times cooking app and you you look at those comments and it it's true um you're right it is a positive um experience yeah. um gives me a lot of hope as a recipe writer and developer myself that people are not just trying to snark and nag on your ideas yeah i love that
0: and if they are if they do have issue with something it it's usually because they haven't made it yet but it's often very like valid and it's it's sort of they're adding to the conversation they're like um why wouldn't you just do this and then (laughs) but you know i don't always have time to go in and be like because we thought about this, and all that stuff. But um, <laughs> yeah, they're very engaged. The NYT okay. Cooking comment section is kind of why you you get that subscription. I, I would say.
1: Right, now. I love that. yeah. The swaps are really good in there too, and there's yeah, a lot of just extra info. Let's talk about your your writing about so about Korean American. I, I feel this is like a really advanced conversation. We'll probably work on something on Taste closer to publication. Um, I loved editing you that I think one time. Yeah, that was
0: like the last time, and and then I got the job like right after. I know so it was just it was that was so fun. I wrote a story for Taste about second fridges, and yeah, it was. Um, that was really fun to work on. I, would like, always wanted to write for Taste. So Thank you
1: for doing that. I'm so glad and I
0: got to do it, like, right before I joined.
1: Uh, it's a great piece, <laughs> and I, I would definitely appreciate your working around, like, lots of deadlines with that. And so maybe we'll, we'll work on something. But I want to hear about Korean American because I think um, having, you know, written with Dookie Hong, a book about Korean food about five years ago, came out in 16, you know, you— there's been a lot of co- books about Korean food that have been published since then and, and it's there's like a lot of interest in Korean food and, and you know it's it's a it's been a great trajectory and you can look back at the listen back to the Dookie Hong interview I did with him a couple of years ago but Eric tell me with Korean American what was your goal in kind of differentiating it from the rest of the Korean cookbook world and and really did you accomplish that with a book
0: Um I feel like Time will tell. <laughs> I'm still in. I'm still in the last edit. But I, I first want to say that Koreatown really influenced the book. You know, I or my book. I reference it like a couple times. There's so many. It's so hard writing about a culture that maybe hasn't written about that much as much as other you know cuisines. Um, so you go to the texts that exist, and especially when it comes to like American texts, it's. It's always um, helpful to see how other people do it. And so Sohee, Sohee Kim's uh, Korean Home Cooking, excellent book as well. Excellent book. Absolutely. It really helped me, obviously, like anything mong chi. So, yeah, I had a lot of, like, um, influences to, like, kind of lead me to the right direction and a lot of anxiety going into it because I was like, who am I to, you know, be an <laughs> expert on Korean food or to talk about it? But I think once I leaned into, once I ignored that and kind of stopped worrying about that and realized that I'm a reporter and I kind of approached the book in that way so I feel like I, you know I didn't get to do as much reporting as I wanted to um, it was going to have more of like that, the Curry Town vibe actually but I, it was during like the pandemic and it, it, everything changed so it really became like a home cooking book and I was sort of reporting on my family and um, there are like you know, certain interviews with like um, people, like characters in, in the neighborhood and stuff. I, I think What makes it different is that it's my story and it's my family's story. And I think that's the main thesis of the book, which is that this is not, you know, supposed to be the one, the, you know, definitive guide to Korean American food or cooking. It's it's one story. And I think it's really important that um, I always say this, that the masses represent the masses, not an individual. I think it's important my hope is that this this book is, you know, just one of many that are, you know, gonna keep coming out. Corine Vegan just came out. Um sh- we have her interview oh, with her on oh, good. Oh yeah. She's oh my god, she's incredible. She's such a good talker, such a Anyway, she's a. F- I, I told her the other day that she's gonna be like opa famous. Very, very <laughs> well soon. thank you
1: for the comment about Korean. I just wanna <laughs> say that and, and also I, I from the bits I've read from your manuscript and, and just what I've seen is this book is extremely unique in that it is your story and I just I look forward to to really the the, the, the precise writing and the way that you really characterize not just the recipes but your family's story and just the color that you write with. It's special when you can go into memoir in writing and not make it annoying. I'm just gonna say that there's, <laughs> there's been a lot of blowback. It's not an original thought. There's a lot of like, let's just get to the recipe. Yeah. But Eric, I really mean it. Like your words are worth reading. And I just feel like you draw parallels with life around the world, around the country, within the Korean diaspora, Korean-Americans. Your book is called Korean-Americans. So I, I just, Thanks. I hope uh, folks pick up your book. I, I really, when it comes out. Thank you. Actually, like memoir is a good thing to talk about
0: because I think once I this is the book where I like really leaned into that and I really felt you know I I think in my career I've like written different kinds of pieces and maybe my bread and butter is memoir writing but with this book I really kind of got to feel the power of that form um, especially when you're talking about um, a cultural cuisine and just trying to make sure that you are telling a very specific story because it's in the specifics that you find truths I think and Ironically, it's in the specifics that you, in the individual specifics that you get universal truths. And so, you know, even though I had a lot of anxiety with this book, and I, I want people to pick it up and be like, "This is this is one Korean person's story." I, I also want Koreans to feel seen, and I think that's one beautiful thing that's happened with putting up recipes that happen to feature gochujang or you kim know, or, uh, or something like that. But I, I think the main thing has been seeing the reaction of other Koreans who, who feel seen. That feels really nice.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about Atlanta. I've I've been, I've had the pleasure of, of visiting Atlanta many times and for Koreatown, got to go to Duluth, got to go to Beaufort Highway Farmers Market, Beaufort Highway. And and you, know, you write a lot about Atlanta cuz that's where you're from, but I want to get your take on the community in Atlanta right now in 2021, the Korean American community. Um, It's vibrant, and and I feel like the national media doesn't cover Atlanta as a city where Korean culture is pervasive. So what's the scene right now?
0: Nice. Yeah. I always said that that Korean food in Atlanta is better than the Korean food in Manhattan. I can't say as much about Flushing or, like, Jersey. But um, the Korean food in Atlanta is so good. And I think this book, being in lockdown but also just, you know, moving back home to write it, And spending time in Atlanta and going to restaurants and, you know, businesses and interviewing people, I kind of realized that city that I grew up in, I really took for granted. And I just, I didn't realize what a vibrant Korea town there was. And I didn't, I took these things for granted. Like, of course, that whole shopping center is, uh, you know, taken over by Korean businesses. Of course, there are 3H Marts, of course. Like, but then when you really look at the rest of the country, you realize, whoa, we were in a really beautiful, like, Korean place. So, it's also a love letter to Atlanta. It's like mm-hmm. it's about my family and myself and you know food, but it's also a love letter to Atlanta. The last chapter is called Korean Bakery, and I think that was kind of it's like a good example to describe this. But I interviewed a woman who came over from Korea and started a chain of Korean bak- windmill. Yeah, white windmill. So, white
1: windmill. I know that spot for sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Gro- so growing up, it's on Beaver Highway. It's amazing, but you know, growing up. I thought White Windmill was just everywhere. I thought it was, like, Perry Baguette, and I thought it was, like, you know, all the other Korean bakeries that are more national. But it was just this woman, and she she grew up in a bakery as well. And she she's just – she was a really impressive character. And I, I think it, it took me, like, growing up – like, she, she was always around. Like, she even, like, went to our church, I think, and stuff. It took growing up and kind of, like, looking at it from – a reporter angle to realize what a what a great story that was and so she kind of starts off that chapter and mm. i just it's a really wonderful
1: bakery i can't wait to you to read your articulation of the korean bakery experience because i feel like that's um it's very unique you know they, there's european influence there's the franken pastries with hot dogs and all <laughs> that you know the the mashing of culture yeah what's your re- what's one recipe from that chapter that we should look forward to
0: there's a chewy black sesame rice cake that I really like. And it's sort of, it's my favorite Korean bakery good, which is that chewy black sesame roll. It's made with like mochiko flour and very chewy. Oh, man. Um, yeah. I said chewy like four times.
1: <laughs> it's it's a great word. It, it really gets the sense of what you're doing here with this recipe.
0: Yeah. And that roll is just really moist. It's a weird word, but it's like very hydrated and it's just like, like nothing else. So I really love that. And so I, I was able to somehow like turn it into a cake. And mm-hmm. the cake is really nice because when it, it's just like a one bowl thing you whisk everything together it's cool when it bakes because the sesame seeds are half ground and half whole and as they as the cake bakes some of the some of the sesame seeds and the sugar they kind of like rise to the top mm. and they bake in a single line on the top kind of like like a almost like a black sesame brittle kind of thing It was a total accident and i was like that looks really cool and i did that on accident and it tastes really good oh (laughs) yo that's great great.
1: i i have to say tell the story i was when we were reporting the book we bill addison was in atlanta working there at the time i think it was like 2013 or 14 and he took us to the spot that uh, did undone chicken undone jindak
2: Mm -hmm. right
1: and i'd never had that dish never in new york agree with you about manhattan at least I, I don't i don't eat out in manhattan curry as often as i'd like to i love her name is han and there's some spots there but yeah. but atlanta is is the truth yeah. but um other dishes in atlanta that you're seeing that you aren't really seeing in in new york are there other yeah specialties
0: yeah i have a thing i actually i'd love it to be love it to be a call to the listeners but Uh, Another kind of truism or thing I realized in Atlanta was that this chicken wing that I took for granted was maybe a very Atlanta thing. So, like, I always thought Korean chicken wings were this very, like, dry, slightly moist, but, like, it's, like, mostly, like, a dry wing, very, very peppery, very Tabasco-y, hot saucy, very vinegary. Um, It's very sharp and so delicious and like nothing else. It's kind of like a buffalo wing, Hmm. but a little more, like, concentrated and and more peppery. But... Um, I was talking to my dad, and he's kind of like friends with one of the guys who started the one of the first restaurants in in Atlanta. And because of the history, it's so it's so new. I started to wonder if maybe this is a this is a theory, but I started to wonder if maybe it was like the Mexican immigrant population and the Korean immigrant population that like kind of came together in restaurants, and um, they created this wing, and it was very popular in Buford Highway. And it's kind of like the hot wing you can you might find at like Atlanta Korean. Uh, hot wing restaurants and I think it might be very particular to Atlanta um, it's like you can get fried chicken up here but it's it's always going to be like more Korean like Korea Korea style mm-hmm. with like the Yangnyeom yum seasoning or um, you know just plain or you know whatever they have now but so yeah this is like a very that's ad- cool I Atlanta like that I think diving
1: and those those kind of regional like dishes and the way that you're tackling is is why I look I look forward to reading your book and and your work at the Times and I want to hear, talk a little more times because I saw this tweet that kind of <laughs> oh. lifted the curtain a bit um, at the New York Times food desk. I can't remember who tweeted it, but I believe it was to you. It says, are you a Dukes or QP person? <laughs> or or no, no? Let me get, get, get it straight. Are you Dukes or QP Hive? So Eric, are you Dukes or QP Hive? <laughs> I'm neither, actually.
0: <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've always, it's kind of like, we can talk about salt maybe, or maybe we shouldn't, but um, uh, my my kind of secret is that I love Hellman's, and I've always been a Hellman's guy, and I think it's, the flavor fits my palate. I like that it's kind of softer and gentler, and it's also what I grew up with, and um, QP is, you know QP is really good, but it's a little strong for
1: it's me. Strong, it's really and strong, and you're, you're taken zero money from Hellman's, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Figured <it out>. so. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. Hellman's is dope, and it definitely has – I love the way you just said soft, because it, it is – it's like a softer MSG is through – like driving its way through QP. And then Dukes – what do you think about Dukes? What's your take on it? It's like
0: tartar, and it's more flavorful. But, yeah you know, it, it is a thing where it's only the Dukes people who are, you know – have their fists up and they're just like dukes is the best but you don't see anyone you don't see any hellman's people being like hellman's is the best mayonnaise you know I, I, so it's a, it's a really funny kind of behavioral thing i've noticed and i think that happens when it's a regional thing and you're trying to like claim it as your own and yeah it makes sense yeah i, I get,
1: mean talking about mayonnaise is is just fun great names it's great on every everything i believe fully though ranch is probably my favorite condiment of that ilk <laughs> yeah. um what are you looking forward to this fall for cookbooks? I wanted to ask you um, because you know these books that are coming out right now are really special, you know, selection of books because these are quarantine books. These are books that are written during the quarantine, as your book was written during the quarantine. So I, I, I feel um, it's important to call that out and talking about the fall season, the spring season of next year. Like these books are written under tremendous circumstances, so um, just get that out of the way first. But what are you looking forward to
0: when it comes to the fall? Um, I've actually one thing I've really gained an interest in over the pandemic and over the course of writing this book was was baking so i'm really looking at valerie lamas's like new book it's it's wonderful and for obvious reasons and you know jesse sheshek um who just full disclosure is a friend he he wrote cookies and i think it's i kind of saw like you know the behind the scenes of that whole process and there, there's just so much heart in in, in jesse's book and it's it's also innovative. Like if you've ever had his food, it's just he, he like cooks really well. So the cookies are. I'm excited to try some of them myself because they they just they sound really delicious. Yeah,
1: they're really inventive and and, and, yeah. and straight up. Valerie and Jesse are booked for the show, so I don't oh, know good. when this is coming out. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> they may have appeared before in the feed, they may appear after, but those are two. Oh, I Love them both. You, yeah, as yeah. people too, they're just great. people. Great folks. We ask everyone on the Taste Podcast, "What is your dream cookbook or food book?" If you were given unlimited time, budget, and really all the space you needed to write, what would it be, Eric?
0: I thought about this, and the real answer is something that full disclosure—I like—I don't want to talk about because I think I'm going to like pitch it some soon. <laughs> but I will say one book that I really would like to do is, you know, just like a hundred dinner recipes. Like that sounds—I'd have to come up with an angle that um, you know is, is is new and feels feels right for me, but. I think to to explain that it's because, you know, I I, lo- I thought this book was really wonderful to produce for obvious reasons. Like I was cooking with my mom for a year, it's so rewarding learning about your heritage and your past and your your own hometown, a lot of good things. But there were parameters, right? Like it had to be Korean and, and American. So there were there were parameters, and there there's a lot of invention that came from that. But I really just want the freedom to develop a book that has that's in the general cooking category not to take away from korean american i'm so proud of it and it's a great intro but i just want to i just want to be able to write about what i want and i think it's almost it almost feels political to like want to write just a regular dinner book like mm-hmm. every other white writer out there so
1: yeah great answer and i i really encourage you to continue writing um You know, from the road, yeah, (laughs) from the missed deadline, and just writing with the spirit uh, that creates these just wonderful recipes, but also stories. Eric, thanks for the permission. (laughs) No, I'm just, I just can't wait to 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 watch your career and just all the all the books you're going to write. Thank
0: you so much. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, I've like been a
1: taste fan for a long time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining, Eric. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Anna, we wanted to close our first show back with a little we'll call it a FAQ to answer some of the questions about our return to podcasting after over two years off the air. So, Anna, tell me, what is up with this cookbook you've been writing? I want to hear about that first.
2: I am writing a book all about canned fish. So my apartment right now is pretty much filled to the brim with canned fish. Small New York apartment. And probably like 200 cans, like of fish.
1: total prepper style. I love it.
2: Yeah, I'm ready for anything. Blizzards come at me.
1: Why land on canned fish? I love this idea. Is it something I know you'd written about it in Taste? But what what landed on? it? How did you land on that?
2: I mean, tin seafood in general connects so many different cultures and cuisines together, and it's such a special thing to collect to bring home as a souvenir from a trip to give to people and there are so many ways to enjoy it straight out of the can or by cooking it into recipes
1: so cool i can't wait till it comes when's it coming out
2: it's coming out in spring 2023 stay posted
1: in the future awesome
2: what about you you're also working on a book
1: I know, like, right, we're talking about our book projects here. No, we've been busy with working on taste, and we'll get into that later. But, yeah, I have a book coming out in February called Food IQ. I wrote it with my buddy Dan Holsman, who is has been on the podcast many times. Um, and it is out uh, in early February or mid-February. So it answers 100 burning food questions through recipes, anecdote, and bullshitting. No, really, there's no bullshitting. We just kind of talk about it as we do.
2: It's a great book. There is some canned fish in your book, too.
1: Shouts, yeah, definitely some canned fish in there. But, like, enough about us. Let's talk about the podcast because we're bringing it back. So for you, Anna, why, why bring it back? Like, what was your plan when bringing it back?
2: Well, there's so much that you can learn about a person and their attitude towards cooking from just sitting down and having a conversation with them. You get to hear some of the uglier, nitty-gritty parts about writing a cookbook or opening a restaurant, some of the little details you wouldn't hear otherwise. But you also just get to hear amazing stories from people, like when we had Dory Greenspan on the podcast, and she talked about... In, like, 1993, working for the Food Network and how scrappy and DIY it all was.
1: Yeah, I love that episode. It really takes you back to a time when food media is much different. And we often do focus on the food media and the writing of, of about food and cookbook authorship. We had Ruth Royce on. We had Pete Wells. We had... Robert Tsitsima and Bill Addison, review, restaurant critics. So we'll continue that tradition of interviewing writers we really respect and, and authors, but also emerging talent in food. I feel like that's something we've always done in the Pages of Taste, but hopefully we'll speak with young, hungry talent and hear about their big ideas.
2: I gotta ask, I mean, I wanna ask this question to listeners too, but who are some of your dream guests, Matt? Like, just thinking big.
1: Ooh, it's a good one. I thought about this. I know, like, Looking over o- across the pond, I love Nigella Lawson. Like, I have to talk to Nigella Lawson at some point. I think she's so generous with her time. She's so classy and, and has, m- first and foremost, a really cool sense about home cooking and the way she develops recipes. I also want to talk to Ruby Tando, who has written a few articles for Taste, and she's one of the leading lights in food writing over over there in in, in England. Uh, and lastly, I think Gary Steingart, a novelist um, who— I've, I've kind of known through email over the years, I think you might be stopping by at some point. So I look forward to that.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. For me, it's all about, um, I'm going to say, like, childhood heroes. Like, I would love to sit down and talk to Rachel Ray. I've been watching oh, yeah. her show forever. Um, Martha Stewart definitely would be awesome.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, we have some really good guests already Already in the can, as they say. Already in the tin. <laughs> <laughs> the tinned fish no we have some tin fish in the can uh we talked to Priya Krishna we talked to Valerie Lomas we have maybe Lucas Sin will stop by we have been making lots of plans and we hope to really populate the feed with with cool interviews big and small names folks you may know folks you may not know and really podcasting has just changed so much since the two years of, of us signing off and we know many of you may be new to the podcast so welcome and enjoy the ride
2: The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.